Hi, this is Dominic Pace from the new Star Wars series, The Mandalorian, and you're listening to the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. I can bring you in warm, or I can bring you in cold. This podcast is part of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts, visit red5network.com. There is more knowledge here than anywhere else in the galaxy. Only members of the Jedi Council are allowed access. Guarding the holocrons is one of the most important duties a Jedi can be given. Do you think you're up to the task? Welcome to another episode of the Jedi Temple Archives podcast. I'm your host, Rob, and we are recording this episode on Wednesday, June 24th, 2020. Before we get into the episode, I'm going to play a quick clip from our latest sponsor, Odagunga Insurance. Yeah, I'm married. Does it matter? You'd do that for me? Really? Yeah, I'd like that. Who are you talking to? It's Jar Jar from Otakunga Insurance. Yeah, it sounds like a really good deal. Jar Jar from Otagunga at three in the morning? Who is this? It's Jar Jar from Otagunga. What are you wearing, Jar Jar from Otagunga? Misa? Misa wearing some mooey bombad khakis. She sounds hideous. Well, she's a guy, and he's a Gungan, so... Like an annoying neighbor, Jar Jar is there. That's a me. Dewey insurance is not applicable when rebel vehicles are involved. Oh, woo! All right, so for this week's episode, I have got Ro from the Scarif Scuttlebutt podcast back with me. And a couple episodes ago, Ro, we got into a conversation regarding kind of some of the behind-the-scenes aspects of Empire Strikes Back. We're about a month downstream from that. Uh, but I know that even with everything we discussed, there were still a number of things that we had kind of left on the table uh, that are interesting kind of little uh, threads to follow or unravel. And I just wanted to have us circle back and talk about some of those things that we missed in that prior episode. So uh, first and foremost, welcome back to the Jedi Temple Archives podcast, and thanks for joining me. Hey, Rob, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me, and uh, welcome back from vacation. I know uh, it looks like you had a really, really great time. I wish... uh I wish I, I wish it was longer for you, but I also wish that uh, I was there or we are, were all, uh, you know, uh, hanging out. Uh, I, I know you were uh, snapping some pictures with the guys over at Conversations, uh, which is really cool. But uh, welcome back, sir. Yeah, and thank, thank you for having me on again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for uh, for welcoming me back. Uh, certainly had to get back, had to get back to work. And uh, we've got ScarifCon 2020 kind of barreling down at us about, what, three and a half weeks out. So uh, very exciting, very yeah. exciting stuff. 
Big time, big time fun. Anyone who's going to be in the greater Chicago area on, I believe it's July 19th, correct? Uh, Sunday, July, July 19th? 19th, Sunday, July 19th, Alley Cats. We are uh, putting together a little get together. Uh, we're calling it ScarifCon 2020. Last year, if you guys remember, we had ScarifCon 2019, which was tons of fun. We had folks, uh, other Chicago pods, uh, WSTR, Galactic Public Access, we had Michelle, we had uh, Heather, we had all the guys from WSTR, and I'm hoping that uh, they will join us again. And uh, obviously you, uh, yeah. Mr. Jedi Temple Archives podcast himself, thank you for driving all that way. And again, I really appreciate your support uh, yeah. through all of our projects, and uh, I, I really am excited to once again hang out with you uh, on that weekend. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're going to have uh, Dominic Pace the gecko, the bounty hunter from the Mandalorian, who's going to be joining us at Alley Cat Comics in the Andersonville neighborhood here in Chicago. And it's going to be a blast. Yeah, we had a great time last year, despite the fact that we had a, a bit of a nip in the air. Uh, I know that uh, some some of the folks there wanted to call it HothCon, but uh, this summer, I don't think we're going to have that issue. It's going to be a blast nice, nice. Of, a, of a different sort. Of course it will. Yeah. And um, really my only re regret with the event last year was that I just didn't get to spend enough time out there with you guys. And uh, I've rectified that this year. I'm going to be in town for a couple of evenings. So uh, we should have a good time hanging out. I know we're going to have some folks that were there last year that will be missed this year. But uh, definitely for anyone who was interested in checking that out in Chicago, please meet us up there. Uh, definitely Dom Dominic Pace is a super great guy. Uh, he's going to be in town, going to be uh, peddling some of his merch and supporting local business uh, and the folks at Alley Cat were awesome last year and I expect no different this year. Very excited. Yeah. Very excited for that. Sweet. So, uh, like I said, we're going to circle back to our conversation on Empire Strikes Back and uh, as we talked about uh, what, two episodes ago now, uh, there was so many things going on in the background of the making of the original trilogy really throughout all three films. But Empire, I think, was kind of the one where they had the most moving parts with the creation of Lucasfilm and uh, ILM and Lucas moving the whole operation up there to Marin County uh, outside of San Francisco. And, you know, that alone would have been a huge undertaking but at the same time they're dealing with all these other complications uh one of which and, and kind of the thing that drove me to want to revisit this in this episode was a comment you had made when you were re-listening to it uh regarding the the back and forth between lucas and john dykstra who was such a critical member of his uh that ilm team that he had put together for the first film uh certainly uh the guy that the dykes reflex camera was named after so uh his contributions could not be understated but he had broken off uh, with a group a subset of those ILM folks and uh, formed his own company. It was uh, Apogee, was it? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. And actually, uh, during that last episode that we uh, were talking about that, I think that's the first time that I've heard of that name. I know some of the ILMers kind of split off um, and formed a company called The Orphanage, but that was later, I think, in the 90s if I'm not uh, mistaken, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that was going on behind the scenes. Yep. Yeah. And I just double checked it. It was a company called Apogee. And one of the projects uh, that had come up in that last discussion was the whole conflict that arose because so many of these guys who had worked on Star Wars then went on to work on Battlestar Galactica. And uh, I know that there's been some interesting photos that have been posted out there about some scenes for Battlestar that, um, that, that, 
show up very close to uh, a similar setup in Empire Strikes Back. Uh, and certainly those uh, Battlestar episodes were released first. Uh, it'd be hard to say, you know, who inspired who really. But, um, you know, based on everything that had been created for that initial Star Wars film, uh, it would be hard for any space odyssey or space drama series that was uh, taking place at that time to not have uh, been accused of kind of stealing some of the IP or borrowing heavily from some of the things that were developed for Star Wars. And certainly that was the case with John Dykstra and that group that uh, were working on Battlestar. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, like you said, listening, re-listening to that episode, uh, there's a lot of other things that came to mind. I uh, posted a couple of frames from Battlestar Galactica and uh, The Empire Strikes Back that were strikingly similar. And uh, the the frames that, um, that come to mind are the uh, the discussion that Leia and and Han were having in the hallway right before uh, you know at the t- towards the top of the of the film um, there were some very striking similarities in placement and camera angle uh, with a scene in Battlestar Galactica when Starbuck returned from a mission and um, uh, Cassiopeia was uh, arguing with him very much similar to Leia and, and Han. Um, they were arguing about the mission and, and what's important and things like that. There's even a, a rebel soldier that passes them by in The Empress Strikes Back that is very similar to uh, you know, a galactic warrior from Battlestar Galactica that is seen walking past in the in the background. So it's uh, like you said, you know, you don't think about it, but uh, you know, Galactica came out uh, prior to uh, uh, Empire Strikes Back. So it's 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 kind of a funny thing. You know, the the creatives kind of either you know paying homage to each other um, or just kind of giving themselves a nudge nudge wink wink, which is very fascinating, especially. Uh, for us behind-the-scenes guys that uh, kind of take a look at all that stuff uh, with a fine-tooth comb. Yeah, and, you know, certainly uh, I'm sure we see it even in today's uh, business, but back then the, the group of guys that were working with these levels of special effects uh, was a relatively small subset of the folks out there in Hollywood uh, and certainly the people that had experience with that technology that had been created for that initial Star Wars film. And, um, you know, we certainly could sit there and talk ad nauseum about how that technology has really carried on and, and is embedded in almost everything we watch today, both in television and in film. But uh, when you're looking at something like that, where, uh, you know, you look at some of the ships that, that were created for Battlestar Galactica, and there's definitely uh, some similarities to things you see in Star Wars. And, you know, just that whole idea of a space, uh, a space odyssey or that, that whole uh, space opera, uh, that is something that anything prior to Star Wars had been done uh, in had been done at a level where the special effects just were not convincing. And with Star Wars and then carrying on in some of these other projects, we started to see more and more of that realism creep into what we were seeing where you could really kind of bridge that gap and believe that that was something that was taking place out there somewhere else in the universe. Absolutely. Yeah. I just, uh, hopped on the internet to, uh, check on some other things that are similarities. But, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I was also thinking about was uh, the lawsuits that were going back and forth between Lucasfilm and I think it's Universal um, at the time. The um, Rinsler book, The Making of Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, they were talking about how 
um, Lucas uh, somehow got a copy of uh, Battlestar Galactica's script. Um, and uh, obviously, I can imagine being George reading the script and realizing um, – not, you know, the, the similarities in story aren't really as prevalent, but, uh, you know, once that movie, once the film came out, you start to see that uh, there are things that were very similar. And obviously because the technology, um, the projects were the same, uh, it's, uh, you know, as a director uh, for George's point of view, uh, I can see how disconcerting that would be uh, for him. And obviously, you know, having John Dykstra on the Galactica team and even having some concept artists by Ralph McQuarrie um, really kind of puts a a little ho-hum in your step, uh, basically, from the get-go. So, yeah, so one of the things that I realized uh, when I was uh, re-listening to that uh, episode, uh, we were talking about lawsuits and how the uh, laser blasts specifically from the blasters um, needed to change, I think – when the film came out, when the project came out, it wasn't a TV series. It was released in a movie theater. Mm-hmm. And for me, actually, the, um, when I saw it in the movie theater, it was one of the best movie experiences that I've ever had, um, even more so than Star Wars, because for whatever reason, the theater, the projectionist had the volume on super high. And when the uh, Colonial Vipers shot out of the uh, tubes on the Galactica, you can feel the rumble in the uh in the theater seats and it was as an immersive experience as a as a nine-year-old can have at that time so um i have a a special place in my heart for Battlestar galactica uh the original series and um yeah i mean you know a lot of the artists that worked on both projects are artists that uh, i grew up kind of learning from um as far as reading what they did and, uh, you know, now everything is, uh, kind of copacetic, but, uh, like you said, you know, the science fiction films back in the day were very different. Now they kind of all look the same, but, uh, you know, back then there was a struggle, a battle. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and there were a number of things, I think, uh, scenarios where it's interesting because, you know, Lucas certainly would would have had concerns about Battlestar Galactica and did have concerns about Battlestar Galactica kind of, uh, quote unquote, borrowing heavily from his ideas. But as you mentioned, you could turn around and look at things in Empire Strikes Back and even in Return of the Jedi where, uh, you know, Battlestar Galactica had that whole ice planet scene. Uh, in the uh, the Gun on Ice Planet Zero episode that was back from, I think, October of 1978. And then, what do you know, we end up on uh, on Hoth right there to begin Empire Strikes Back. Uh, and there were a number of other similarities. Uh, you had uh, Zack from Battlestar Galactica that, uh, you know, a lot of people draw a parallel between him and Dak, who uh, dies in, in Luke's snowspeeder there during the Battle of Hoth. And so you could really go through, and I'm sure, I'm sure it goes both ways right it's uh you could accuse Battlestar of bar- borrowing from Star Wars in certain scenarios and vice versa and and I do think it would be interesting uh to talk to some of the guys who were involved there and, and find out you know how much of it was uh kind of good-natured you know jostling each other a little bit and how much of it was just really you know trying to uh to serve your employer to the best of your ability uh if you're one of the guys working on those special effects or those episodes yeah, and uh, you could really find a lot of things on the internet. I was able to find the uh, the uh, lawsuit, the paperwork from the let's see, from the Court of Appeals, Ninth Circuit 
District Court, 1983, 20th Century Fox versus MCA. Um, and they, it's funny, just looking at this, obviously it's got a lot of legal goopily got, but uh, towards the end there, you've got their points of contention, with which are 13 similarities. I'll, I'll read them off real fast yeah. because they, they are very, it's kind of an amusing thing. So one, the central conflict of each story is a war between the galaxy's democratic and totalitarian forces. Two, the star, in Star Wars, the young hero's father had been a leader of the forces and the present leader of the democratic forces is a father figure to the young hero. Similar thing there. Number three, the leader of the democratic forces is an older man. I don't know, that's kind of a stretch. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah. uh, four, an entire planet central to the existence of the democratic forces is destroyed. The, hero, the heroine is imprisoned by the totalitarian forces. A leading character returns to the family home to find it destroyed. The search by the totalitarian and the lib liberation attempt by the democratic forces are depicted in alternating sequences between the totalitarian and democratic camps. That's like an editing thing back yeah. and forth. I, that's another stretch. Right. Uh, number eight, there's a romance between the hero's friend, the cynical fighter pilot, and the daughter of one of the leaders. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. Uh, number nine is, uh, I think, my favorite one. A friendly robot who aids the democratic forces in several injured or destroyed battle, uh, battle stars by, the, by each force. Ten, there's a cantina scene. Uh, Star Wars Cantina, Battlestar Casino, which musical entertainment is offered. <laughs> now we're going to have to bring uh, Canto yeah. Bite into that, right? So. Right, 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 right. 11, space vehicles. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, 12, the climax consists of an attack by the Democratic fighter pilots. And 13, each work ends with an award ceremony. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, it's but, uh, yeah, it's very funny. Yeah, and it's interesting because I mean, uh, certainly they're trying to uh, to score their points there with their lawsuit. But so many of those things are, are tropes that existed in really any of the prior uh, sci-fi type shows that were out there. Uh, even going back to things like Flash Gordon, uh, it's just that they weren't done nearly as well. So I don't think there was you know the money behind them. Uh, that there was by the time that Battlestar and Star Wars were out there. You know, really right on the surface, I mean, Battlestar Galactica is about this fleet fleeing their planet that has been uh, destroyed and being pursued by the Cylons. Uh, and you end up with that same scenario, really, from the end of Star Wars all the way through Return of the Jedi with that, you know, that rebel fleet uh, kind of fleeing from the forces of the Empire. So, you know, there are definitely parallels there. Um and again, I, I don't know, certainly at that age, uh, as, as a young child watching these things, I just love the story. I love, like you said, I mean, you know, the, uh, the fighters that they had in, in Battlestar Galactica, the fact that you could certainly draw parallels between the Cylons and the stormtroopers with regard to, you know, them just kind of being these automa automatons that are following the directives of their leadership and not really having a whole lot of, uh, personal choice in the matter. But, uh, I thought they were both, you know, great to watch growing up in their own right. And it's really not until you become an adult and start looking at things through, you know, that tinted lens of, of adulthood that you really start to see some of the cynicism that they must have been dealing with at the time. Absolutely. Fleeing from the Cylon tyranny. 
But uh, you mentioned Flash Gordon. I mean, George Lucas, uh, you know, if, if uh, a lot of your listeners don't know, uh, George Lucas was trying to get the rights to actually do Flash Gordon. And uh, I think without success, uh, after a couple of years, he just decided, you know what, I'm just going to do uh, my own science fiction story and uh, see where that leads. But, uh, yeah, I mean, after a while, um, you know, stories start to kind of, you know, sound the same. And uh, it just depends on the presentation, the creativity uh, and the uh, change around. But uh, nowadays, I mean, Hollywood is remaking everything. So what's the point? Right. You know, and there's there's arguments that get made uh, very similar to that when you look at the music of John Williams. And I certainly don't think, especially within the Star Wars films, right, I don't think anyone would sit there and say that John Williams is not, uh, you know, a maestro, a, a genius in terms of the music that he has created across all kinds of different films. But certainly within Star Wars there was there was talk that you know people thought that he was borrowing heavily from works that had come before uh and, and if you listen to uh david w collins break things down on either the soundtrack soundtrack show or uh on star wars oxygen that he did with rebel force radio uh you know you listen to those temp scores that were done for both star wars and and then the later films and you definitely hear elements of them in the compositions that John Williams put out there. But at the same time, he is trying to to evoke that feeling. And there are similarities, but there's also a lot there that that makes it unique. Uh, and I think that the stories that we're talking about with Battlestar and the various Star Wars uh, saga films... It's the same type of thing, right? Like you mentioned, there are these tropes, there are these storylines that run through all different types of, of films because they are kind of uh, central themes that, that have just evolved through time. And you're going to be able to find those similarities if that's what you go looking for. Uh, but at the same time, you know, these, these films uh, and these series came out with their own storylines that they wanted to tell and, and their own points that they were trying to make with the episodes they were putting out there. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned, um, you mentioned, uh, you know, David W. Collins is a great show if anybody is interested in uh, breaking down how music interplays in films, especially genre films. The uh, Empire Strikes Back episodes really made me weep. Uh, I, I right away uh, told everybody I could to listen to them. But uh, I don't think John Williams, um, I don't think anybody can call him a, a hack. Obviously, because of uh, the amount of work, uh, uh, the amount of amazing work that he's done. And, uh, he, you know, even even if he did only just do kind of those similar uh, themes, I mean, you've got these orchestrations like uh, Princess Leia's theme, the Imperial March, uh, you know, all those standalone uh, pieces of music that uh, definitely are part of the uh, science fiction, not even just the Star Wars, but part of the science fiction mythos when it comes to, uh, you know, music. Um, you know, uh, how many people do you know or have you heard that uh, are getting married and, and their song, uh, their their march down the aisle is the Imperial March? I mean, uh, that's that's got to say volumes right there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know maybe what it's saying sometimes, but. <laughs> being marched to your doom, I guess. But uh, <laughs> no, you know, and the interesting thing as well is that, you know, as you pointed out, and 
certainly is gets explored in in the uh, the episodes from David W. Collins when he looks at the music. But all this ties back to what we discussed in the previous episode about the hero's journey and uh, you know that whole mythos uh, that that Joseph Campbell had put together. And so there are those similar components that show up in these stories uh, that are going to kind of resonate with people. Uh, and with regards to John Williams, I think the interesting thing is you know. George Lucas would refer to the Star Wars films as silent films, not in the sense that they didn't have dialogue in them, which they obviously do, but in the sense that the music was really informing you uh, of what was going on, of what emotions you should be feeling. And that was something that John Williams did an amazing job with. I mean, uh, to the point uh, that you were making about David W. Collins and his, his review of the music in The Empire Strikes Back, the great thing about that particular film is that there is so much music that was written for that that did not get used uh, because when they would watch uh, the that cut of the film, they were feeling like maybe the music was tipping the hat of the scene a little bit earlier than they wanted it to or uh, the, the sound work that Ben Burt was doing uh, gave kind of a more organic, uh, you know, underlay for the the particular scene that they were playing and the music was maybe unnecessary so uh there's so many components that go into making these films uh and that's a place where i I see the star wars films kind of uh definitely having an advantage on battlestar galactica i don't think the music in battlestar galactica was used um quite to that level and uh and they were relying more on just the story there as opposed to star wars which was really uh, being kind of a story that was being told on multiple levels, including the music. Yeah, and definitely the budget comes into play, obviously. Battlestar Galactica had uh, a very smaller budget. Obviously, you can see now when, you know, uh, there's only three or four shots in space uh, during the space battles that you see over and over again. They sometimes flip the destruction of a Cylon from one side to the other just to kind of make it different. But, um, I, yeah, I, you know, Battlestar Galactica is an interesting uh, an animal. Um, you know, f- for me, it's, it's it still works. I know uh, a lot of it uh, people can call it cheesy, but uh, I, I actually enjoy the original series, Battlestar Galactica, more so than the new stuff uh, for some reason. Yeah. And... Um, you know, how, how many sequels do you know that uh, work a lot better than the original? I mean, Empire Strikes Back is definitely one of those, uh, you know, one of those cases. Um, to me, it's uh, it's the epitome of of how great a Star Wars can be. And I know I've spoken to this effect uh, on how I feel that uh, I, I just can't handle not that I can't handle, but I just I don't. Humor in Star Wars to me kind of takes me out completely. Um, that's one of the biggest reasons I, I had a problem with uh, with the Last Jedi. But uh, you know, in order for a Star Wars to be uh, immersive for me, I really have to really get into the story. And The Empire Strikes Back really did that for me. It's uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. It's uh, obviously for me, it's the best Star Wars. Uh, Brad and I can argue between Empire and Jedi, but. Uh, uh, you know, it is it's an amazing film to me because of how serious it took its source material, how serious the director presented the story, the uh, story of these characters. And uh, I was on, you know, I continue to be on the edge of my seat uh, even uh, 40 plus years later every time I watch that movie because uh, it's it's very powerful stuff. Yeah, I think you make an excellent point about humor in Star Wars. I mean, 
certainly within the original trilogy, there was still a, a good amount of humor within those films. But the the thing about it was it was not done out of character or out of place within a scene. It was things that you could see that character saying in that moment. Uh, I think, uh, you know, Han Solo and his uh, his whole scene there in the Imperial detention block where he's trying to reply, you know, after they've just blown the, blown the place up and, you know, it's all a slight reactor leak, you know, everything's good here. I could see him in that moment trying to play that off and, and, uh, bluff his way through that situation and all the snappy one-liners that princess leia has uh throughout the films uh certainly the the interplay between luke and leia and han after luke has just come out of the um uh back to tank there in empire strikes back uh with with the kisses and uh you know the arguments between han solo and leia there and the echo base on hoth all those things there were elements of humor in there, but they were all perfectly in character and perfectly in line with the story and they felt natural. Uh, and it's when it's this attempt to, to make a scene funny that takes you out of whatever the drama of the scene is. And I think that's where that discord comes in. Cause I have an issue with that as well. Um, I don't think humor for the sake of humor in a movie like a star Wars, uh, is necessarily needed. I think, uh, it's just better to have it be organic uh, interplay between the characters. And it's funny too, because I love the Marvel movies and I love the, uh, humor in the Marvel muse movies, but for, you know, I'd have to kind of think about it really hard to see what the difference is because it's the same type of humor. Uh, I think, um, but, uh, you know, I, I enjoy the Marvel movies for what they are. And, uh, I don't know. It's it's a uh, it would be an interesting thing for me to think about. Um, you know, another one of the things that really, uh, you know, I was going to say isn't discussed enough, but maybe it is. But uh, since we're on the topic of treating these characters uh, w with seriousness and uh, really, you know, kind of diving into the the seriousness of the journey of these characters is the gamble that George Lucas took by making Yoda a plastic puppet. Yeah. Um, you know, Yoda is a main character and in order for him to, uh, in order for the film to really succeed in this story, uh, Yoda had to be totally believable. And yeah, you, you can tell that he's a puppet. We all know that he's a puppet. He's, he's a plastic, uh, you know, uh, you know, prop behind the scenes, but, uh, you know, gosh darn it, when that part in the movie comes on, uh, you are not thinking about that. You are you are 100 percent invested in that story and uh, trying to find out who this character is. So kudos to the team. Kudos to George Lucas for trusting the story play out. And I don't think a lot of directors have the guts to 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 do that anymore. Um, but um yeah, that's, uh, again, just another reason why it works for me. Yeah, I mean, I know that he had apprehension about Yoda all the way up until the very end, uh, probably even to the point when the film was out in theaters, you know, waiting to see if it was going to if it was going to be something that the audience was going to buy. Certainly huge credit to Frank Oz and the puppeteers that, that brought him to life, because I think that is certainly a huge part of it. We did talk a little bit in the last episode about the fact that a lot of credit has to be given to Mark Hamill because he is the one acting against this inanimate object for lack of a better term. And he did the same thing with R2. I mean, if you look at empire strikes back, mostly 
throughout that entire film, he is not acting against other actors. He's acting against these inanimate objects. Uh, and it's his performance that sells you on them being real. But, you know, now if you move forward to what we've just seen with the Mandalorian and the huge success that they had with that series, baby Yoda has drawn, or the child, if you prefer, has drawn people into star Wars that previously had no interest in star Wars, just because he's so cute and adorable. And that does not happen. If Yoda is not successful, 40, 40 years ago. Uh, Definitely. You yeah. Know, so it's, it, you know, it, it's something that we're still seeing the impact of today. I agree. I mean, you can tell he's not living flesh and blood, but man, it sure is convincing. Oh, here comes baby Yoda. <laughs> I just saw that this evening. I almost picked it up. Uh, yeah. Roe Ro has been uh, dressing up his baby Yoda in red five red, merchandise. Red five yeah. merchandise. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, um, I ordered it on Amazon a couple of uh, months ago and like two days after I got it, I saw it at Target in the wild. So I I, I would say if you see it again, don't hesitate, man. That's a good price. (laughs) It was. Yeah, it was sitting right there at Meijer. That's my uh, go to spot for all things Star Wars right now. And now they've got probe droids uh, right and left everywhere I go. So (laughs) we had them first. But yeah. yeah, any any other uh, points you want to bring up about Empire? Uh, certainly, we've we've had quite a bit of good conversation already, and I mean, this is something where we could get off the air, and five minutes later, you're going to think of something. Uh, it's one of those I'm, conversations. I'm sure. I'm sure I'm going to do that. Yeah, it's one of those conversations that uh, that really would never have to end. But uh, we can always save it for uh, over a drink during ScarifCon, and next for sure. Next time yeah. we have enough to uh, to put together a full episode, we'll do that. Yeah, you know, some of the things, too, that people might not know about was uh, George Lucas's uh, fight with the Directors Guild uh, regarding the credits. Uh, You know, a lot of times, uh, obviously, the DGA has certain rules and restrictions about uh, displaying the credits of the creative people uh, behind the scenes. Uh, George Lucas wanted to do away with that. Uh, the Empire Strikes Back at that point, I think, was uh, one of the things that were in contention uh, between him and the DGA. Um, and, uh, you know, he was uh, they wanted to find him. And what he did is that uh, he just quit the Directors Guild uh, in order for him to envision, uh, you know, uh, the film his way. Uh, he didn't want to put credits at the beginning. And uh, he just wanted to go with what he wanted to do. Obviously, the uh, kind of uh, the uh, commemoration of the sci-fi serials from uh, the from yesteryear. Uh, so, uh, yeah, just another, you know, another way of uh, how, you know, these films are, are very different and very groundbreaking and uh, things that we kind of take for granted nowadays. Yeah, and the interesting thing was that it was specifically related to him not putting the director's name and, and those key credits up front in the in the picture. And they had allowed him to do it in the initial Star Wars film because they were so convinced it wasn't going to be any kind of a hit and they that it was going to be kind of a non-issue. And so here we come with Empire Strikes Back. And at this point, he has his means of opening his films. It's what the audience expects. And uh, he was not going to put his name right there at the top of the film and like you said, the Directors Guild, uh, I believe they fined him like $250,000 for failing to to do that, which is what caused him to kind of cash in that Directors Guild card uh, and go his own way, which certainly, you know, we, we mentioned it in that previous episode that he was all about doing things the way that he wanted to do them. He, he liked to have that creative uh, final say. 
Uh, and it's certainly understandable when you hear about some of the things, you know, we talked about um, THX 1138 and the fact that, uh, you know, there were changes made in the final edit to that film that he felt were uh, very impactful to its success. So I understand where he's coming from. Uh, but yeah, in so many ways, he changed the direction of Hollywood. And, uh, and now here we are 40 something years later. And you almost could sit there and say that Lucasfilm is part of that, you know, machinery of Hollywood now, uh, which is, I think, why it's going to be hard to ever get something as unique as the original trilogy. It's certainly one of the things uh, on top of the fact that, you know, it was such a, a cornerstone of my childhood, uh, but it was such a unique situation at such a unique time in the history of Hollywood. And uh, it would be really hard to replicate that. And so uh, I always try to take that thought into any new Star Wars film that I go see um, in the sense that it's it's not going to have a chance to be quite like what I expect from those original trilogy films. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the magic, uh, was all spent up in those first three films and obviously every generation has their own star Wars and, uh, we can only hope that, uh, a new generation of fans are born, um, because of, uh, these new films, um, like, uh, like we were, but, uh, yeah, you're, you're right. Uh, lightning, you know, Disney is trying to, to catch lightning in a bottle again. Um, I don't think it's going to be as, uh, as it was back in the day, but, uh, you know, they're going to try or die trying. <laughs> yeah. I just hope they don't debut a new COVID trooper <laughs> as their next <laughs> special edition stormtrooper, right? Exactly right. Well, let's hope so. So, yeah, I think that's going to wrap it for this conversation. Ro, thank you again for coming on. Why don't you tell uh, the listeners where they can find you and the Scarif Scuttlebutt podcast? Excellent. Thank you for that. Yeah. So the obviously you can find uh, me talking about Star Wars with uh, Brad and uh, Alex sometimes of uh, Salty Nerd fame. We are all part of the Red 5 Network and we can be found on Twitter at Scarif Podcast. Uh, just check us out and, um, you know, check us out also on Red 5 Network, where uh, obviously a lot of us, including you, uh, can be found. Um, you know, gallivanting across the stars, as we say. But uh, we are having fun talking Star Wars with uh, folks like you, uh, friends that we've made through this uh, franchise, this galaxy far, far away. I'm so pleased to have may, uh, been able to share my love for Star Wars with other uh, like-minded folks. And uh, we're just having fun, man. Yeah, I certainly would say that we are having fun. Uh, the success of, of how things have been going on the Red 5 Network can't be understated. Uh, we've already kind of filled up Red Squadron, and uh, we have Gold Squadron started now for a number of other podcasts and groups that have uh, shown interest in joining us. So uh, definitely all the shows have their own unique take on things, but we all have that common ground of being Star Wars fans uh, and just enjoying talking Star Wars with other like-minded people. And in some cases, you know, we've, we've talked about it with Trevor on some of the Scarif podcast episodes. You know, we run into examples uh, where different people have different ideas about what's good and what's not. And uh, one of the great things about Red, Red 5 Network, certainly in the Scarif podcast, is you guys have always been super cool about, you know, 
embracing those different uh, ideals and uh, different attitudes and uh, and still having that that conversation. So kudos to you on that. Thank you so much for uh, throwing the group together with the Red 5 Network. Definitely check that out. And uh, certainly you can find us uh, anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can find our episodes on jtapodcast.com. You can reach us via email at jtapodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us out on social media at jtapodcast. So with that, I think we're going to wrap it. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. And we look forward to talking to you in a couple more weeks with more awesome Star Wars content. Thank you. And may the force be with you. And that's the scuttlebutt. Oh, I'm sorry. That that's not the wrong podcast. Wrong podcast. Sorry. <laughs> All good. All good.